If you have your Bibles, uh, please turn with me to Philippians uh, chapter 4. We'll be looking at verses 4 through 9. Uh, unintentionally in the uh, Lord's providence, uh, it seems like uh, anxiety has been a, a theme here. Uh, Pastor Dale's has uh, uh, touched on it in sermons in Isaiah. Uh, Pastor Adrian last week in uh, Matthew 6, and we'll be looking at it again this morning. So I'm not sure what the Lord is uh, telling us, uh, whether that's a particular need in the congregation or a reflection of what your pastors need, uh, but, but we uh, will be looking at uh, a very practical theme today as we look at Philippians 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, Whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things and what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me. Practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. Let's ask for the Lord's help now. Father in heaven, as you have promised to be a shepherd to us and to lead us into green pastures, we pray that you would use this word that speaks to our anxieties and our fears and promises peace, that you would use this word uh, to, to lead us into a richer experience of knowing you and the peace which comes from you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So our verses uh, this morning are meant to ask and answer a specific question. How is it possible to experience peace amid toilsome, troublesome circumstances? Or more plainly, where can I find peace in this life? It's a very practical question that the Bible addresses for us today. It's practical especially because peace seems elusive to so many. We live in a sea of troubles and anxieties. Daily, we're confronted with uh, circumstances that distress us and distract us and sometimes even drive us to despair. We're anxious about day-to-day material concerns. Uh, People are anxious about rising costs uh, of living as inflation uh, rates climb at an an incredibly quick rate. Uh, Unemployment uh, continues to be volatile. Sometimes we see ourselves worrying about the future, about our health, about our kids, Some Christians are anxious about ideological conflict and cultural pressures. Uh, Christianity, or at least some version of it, is being uh, displaced in the public sphere and marginalized. See, media and public figures and politicians are becoming emboldened in um, what feels like their opposition to Christianity. Uh, Schools at every level, both public and private, are ideological battlegrounds. At a more personal grassroots level, we Uh, just sense the anxiety that comes as we consider even sharing our Christian convictions with those closest to us. We're worried about how they might react or what they might think about us. And then there are interpersonal conflicts to be anxious about. There are stresses in our relationships with family and workmates. 
Uh, maybe you find yourself caught up in disagreements and conflict with people at church. And perhaps even walking through the doors today required an act of courage because you're anxious that you just might cross paths with that person who has caused you great trouble. Now, of course, anxieties about material needs, cultural forces, interpersonal conflicts are not new. Uh, in fact, we see these challenging circumstances represented throughout uh, Paul's letter to the church at Philippi. Paul's spoken about, the material, about material challenges. He's in prison. He's uncertain about whether he's going to live or die. He may have experienced some type of uh, financial need or uncertainty as well as churches were not uh, originally forthcoming with their financial support of his ministry. Paul and the Philippians also were experiencing the uh, fierce currents of cultural opposition and threats to the church. Uh, While Paul was in chains, the Philippians were contending with opponents in a crooked and twisted culture and they were battling the influence of false teachers and enemies of the cross. And both Paul and the Philippians were confronted with the painful reality of conflict in the church. Paul, as some sought to afflict him in his imprisonment, and the Philippians as they dealt with the conflict between those two gospel partners, Judea and Syntyche. So when Paul says, as he does in our passage, that it's possible to experience peace amid adverse and anxiety-producing circumstances, we shouldn't write him off as a hopeless, out-of-touch optimist. His word of hope to anxious people has been tested in the furnace of personal affliction. He's comforting us not just with vain platitudes, but with the comfort which he himself has received. But our question then is, how? How does Paul, and how might we, the anxious people that we so often are, how might we step into a life of greater peace? That's the concern of our text today, and here's the answer that the Scripture uh, sets forth in this passage, that despite the circumstances that confront us, God promises a life of supernatural peace in the Son of God and through the Spirit of God as we trust in the way of God. So we're going to unpack this answer together by looking at the promise of peace, the power for peace, and the pathway to peace. The promise of peace, the power of peace, and the pathway to peace. The promise of peace. To start, to, to start with, we need to define what do we mean by peace? What is it that's promised? Paul says in verse 7, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And we see this promise again echoed in verse 9, and the God of peace will be with you. So both, both of the paragraphs that we've looked at, verses 4 to 7 and verses 8 to 9, they're joined by this common promise. God will give you his peace. But what is that peace? If you do a, a Google search for peace, you'll find all sorts of material written on uh, inner peace. Uh, peace understood here is an inner tranquility or calm. Here's how an article on Oprah's website put it. I think often people look for circumstances to help achieve a sense of inner peace. Now, that's right, but look at where uh, the answer is given. In fact, inner peace, this calm, compassionate, deep awareness, is actually within each person. It's as if, it's as if we have a deep reservoir of peacefulness and serenity inside of us. 
what we have to learn to do is tap into it. So calm, compassionate, deep awareness, and that's a peace that's found inside me, the author tells me. Now, I'm sorry, but that's a load of serenity now nonsense. I know myself well enough, and I think I know you well enough to say definitively that there is no deep reservoir of peace within this heart. I'm constantly doing battle with my own sinful condition, my fears, my insecurities. But this is the peace that the world offers. It's a peace generated by turning inward. In contrast, the Bible tells us here and elsewhere that peace is not Uh, uh, discovered or manufactured, but it's received as a gift. And it's received as a gift not by turning in on myself, but by turning outward to God. Now, Paul uses the term for peace in his writings. Uh, He uses it both uh, to speak of the vertical peace, uh, which is affected between God and reconciled sinners, uh, but also a, a, a horizontal peace that's enacted between reconciled sinners. God has made a way uh, to remove the hostility that existed between us as sinners and him as an uncompromisingly holy God so that now we can have peace with him and from that flows a peace that we can have with one another. And because God has done this, uh, it's possible for us to have a deep experience of harmony and quietness of soul. This experience of peace reflects the reality of who God is in himself. As our text says, he is the God of peace. Theologian John Webster says that when we speak of the God of peace, we're not just saying that God is the one from whom peace comes. We're saying that God is peace. Here's Webster. So we may say that God's peace in himself is the harmony and repose, or or meaning tranquility there, the repose of his being as the three in one. There's no conflict among the persons of the Trinity, nor is there any uh, inner restlessness or dissatisfaction in God that we as uh, creatures experience. The God of peace, Webster says, is entirely and perfectly himself, and so entirely and perfectly at peace. Now we can only attempt to fathom the fullness of this By contrast, can you imagine what it's like being perfectly satisfied and never restless, free from all agitation, no sleepless nights, never an anxious thought, in a state of perfect and permanent alignment of your thoughts, of your desires, of your actions? And though God is responsible for every atom in every galaxy in the universe, he has never experienced a single worry. That's the happy life of God. And I make this point because in verses 7 and 9, when Paul promises us the peace of God and the God of peace, he's telling us that God will give us an experience of his peace. It's a supernatural peace, and so it's far better than anything that pop psychology might be able to offer you. It's not a peace within. It's a peace that comes from without. And in our passage, we're promised a way of of, uh, experiencing this peace, not as we go into the depths of ourself, but we can experience this peace, peace which comes from the infinite depths of God. The peace of God is experienced as the God of peace 
comes to be with us. And our experience of this peace is described in two ways. Uh, First, it's a peace that surpasses all understanding. It exceeds our ability to comprehend it, to wrap our our arms around it. But second, the passage vividly promises uh, this supernatural peace will guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. So like the, the Roman soldiers that would have guarded the city of Philippi, God is telling us through Paul that his peace will act like a garrison of mighty soldiers who are patrolling the walls of the city and watching out for any threats. They're patrolling the wall. God is patrolling the walls of our, our minds, of our mind, of our heart. He's guarding our thoughts and our emotions to strengthen us and protect us from the adversity that's going to continue to face us in this world. God himself will draw near to us by his spirit to give us an experience of his peace. That's the promise offered in these verses. But where does the power for this peace come from? Well, this life of supernatural peace comes exclusively in the Son of God and through the Spirit of God. Or to put it another way, you will only find this peace as you're in Christ and Christ's Spirit is in you. Now, understanding this point is really critical for us in seizing the promise of peace found in this passage. If you read uh, through Philippians beginning to end, you'll notice that Paul makes a fundamental distinction among people. And it's a dis- this distinction that Paul makes is one that runs throughout the entire New Testament. And it's this, that the whole human race can be divided into two groups of people. There are those who are in Christ Jesus and there are those who are outside of Christ Jesus. Those who are in Christ are those who have been joined to Jesus by faith and who have now come under Jesus' loving leadership, his lordship. And those apart from Christ are those who, no matter how religious, no matter how moral, no matter how successful they are, they have not come to exercise this believing trust in Christ. And this is the state of every person by birth, that unless you place your trust in Christ, you remain in your sin and you remain in your hell-bound rebellion against God. Now, this dividing line of whether we're in Christ or outside of Christ is implicit in our passage today as well. If we're truly seeking after supernatural peace, then we need to be as clear as we possibly can on this point. Because according to the Bible, there is no hope for supernatural peace apart from Christ. Being united to Jesus by faith, a faith given to us through the Spirit, this is the power for peace. See this key point in verse 7. The peace of God will guard us in Christ Jesus. It's only as faith joins us to him and we come to be found in Jesus that we come to share in the peace that's found in God himself. So do you want to experience deep abiding, supernatural peace. Well, since this peace is from God, you as a sinner must first be reconciled to God and only that, that can only happen through Jesus. You need to see Jesus as the one who's given for sinners, uh, sinners like you and me, that we might be reconciled to God and you must embrace him with a believing trust. 
Only in Christ can you know peace with God. And only from Christ can you then come to know the peace which comes from heaven, the peace which surpasses all understanding. If you haven't done that, there is nothing that is more urgent for you to do this morning than to do this, to place your faith in Christ. There's nothing more important for you to do if you would want to taste this peace than to trust in Christ and be reconciled to God. This is the the relationship, this is the power which is behind the peace which surpasses all understanding. But you might be here this morning as a Christian and you're wondering, well, what does this mean if I do experience anxiety? If I don't experience this peace, does that mean I'm just a bad Christian? Or maybe, does it mean that I'm not a Christian at all? Well, no. Okay, please hear this. You can be a faithful Christian and still experience anxiety. The promise in our passage is not that every Christian will automatically be granted heavenly peace the moment they become Christians, and we can all exhale. Right? Sometimes there's a complex range of concerns that need to be addressed uh, with the help of, of other people, perhaps with the help of a pastor or a counselor or a doctor. But our passage helps us with this objection too because it shows us that God has prescribed certain things, spiritual vitamins, if, if we can put it that way, to take if we want to battle anxiety and enjoy peace. Like other benefits in the Christian life, God often works through our faith-filled obedience to bless us. So for example, if you want to grow in wisdom and understanding, we need to pick up our Bibles and read them in faith. And similarly, well, God may choose to give us peace directly, that shouldn't be our expectation based on this passage. What he gives us is not the, the promise of just random experiences of peace just happening upon us, but he gives us a pathway that he tells us to walk in, a pathway with a promise that his supernatural peace will meet us there. The logic of the passage is to follow these commands, and if you do, the peace of God and the God of peace will be with you. So what's the path of peace from this passage? Paul gives us five directions, five commands for walking in the way of peace. First direction to the path of peace, rejoice at all times. The command is repeated for emphasis. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Now, since Paul and the Philippians were acquainted with all sorts of reasons that would make rejoicing hard, it makes sense that Paul would repeat the command for emphasis here. This is no scribal error. It didn't get in by accident. He really means it. Rejoice. But this rejoicing isn't just dulling ourselves to the circumstances that we're facing or rejoicing in, in particularly in the, the hard circumstances themselves. Paul's not saying, be glad you've been thrown in jail or be glad you've got cancer, or be glad that you've been sinned against. He says, rejoice in the Lord. This is what Paul's been doing throughout the letter. In chapter 1, as he said, there are those who are preaching to uh, afflict him. They're preaching out of selfish ambition. Paul rejoices, he says, because Christ is proclaimed. When Paul considers the possible outcomes of his imprisonment, uh, one outcome could have been death. He rejoices again, he says, because Christ will be honored in his body, whether in life or in death. He says the same thing in chapter 2 when he considers that he might be poured out as a drink offering. In chapter 4, Paul speaks of rejoicing in the Lord again, though he's passed through a time of financial uncertainty. 
And here in our passage, Paul's just spoken of painful conflict in the church. And he, he can still say, rejoice, be glad. For Paul, neither great trials nor great successes determine joy. Jesus and Jesus' agenda do. Because Paul's been united to Jesus, his present and his future are secure. And so that's what fuels Paul's joy. And that's what can fuel your joy and mine too. It's Jesus and his purposes being carried out in the world. As we see Jesus exalted in his sustaining power, as we see his saving grace, as we see his patience and wisdom, as we see Jesus' transforming power sculpting us and others to look more like him in his character, we can rejoice. Secondly, we're to be gentle toward all people. Reasonableness, as the word is translated in the ESV, is used here to capture the idea of being moderate or not prone to extreme responses. Elsewhere, this uh, word in the original is used to speak of the quality of gentleness. So in James 3.17, wisdom from above is gentle, that's our word, and it's open to reason. Or it's used in reference to Jesus in 2 Corinthians 10 uh, to speak of Jesus' meekness and his gentleness. So we're called here to exhibit a gracious forbearing and gentle spirit toward other people. And this spirit's consistent with the humility that Paul's continued to call us to in this letter. This spirit stands in contrast with a spirit that's quick to jump to judgments, that's defensive or accusatory. Uh, it, It stands in contrast with a person who is unwilling to listen If someone's lacking a a gentle or reasonable spirit, when someone has wronged them, they tend to quickly and strongly uh, respond. They don't respond carefully and graciously. And so let's slow down and test ourselves here. Kids, are you gentle and gracious with your brothers and sisters? Adults, what about your spouse, your children? How about your coworkers or the people you engage with on social media? Admittedly, we can be uh, deeply hurt by the words and actions of other people, but is our response toward uh, these offenses one of, of forbearance or one of attack? Are we prepared to turn the other cheek or to strike back with either uh, explosive anger or the cruel, uh, uh, cold cruelty of indifference? William Hendrickson quipped, The Christian is the man or woman who reasons that it's far better to suffer wrong than to inflict wrong. He adds, sweet reasonableness is an an essential ingredient of true happiness. Now such big-heartedness, such forbearance, the patient willingness to yield wherever yielding is possible without violating any real principle must be shown to all, not only to fellow believers. In this context, to opposed and oppressed Christians... Verse 5 is a call to gentle forbearance with each other and with those outside the church that probably are making the lives of the Philippians miserable. If we're looking for peace, when when we're fixed upon our own rights, our own way, and we're not characterized by this reasonable spirit, of course it makes sense that we're going to be more prone to being anxious. Now, but you might say, that's not right. How can I let that person with what uh, they've done, uh, how can I let them get away with that? Right? Am I just supposed to be victimized or taken advantage of? Let me say two things. 
First, sometimes the loving thing to do will be to address specifically, clearly, firmly uh, the sin that's being done. We know elsewhere from Paul's writings, of course, that the command doesn't mean that he thought we should never speak out against sin or wrongdoing. And while sometimes we'll choose to cover offenses in love, there are other times where um, things are particularly harmful to us or harmful to our relationship with the other person or harmful to someone else uh, that we must address these things. However, even when addressing wrongdoing, we're to do so in a spirit of gentleness. But secondly, I think that we're helped from this passage in particular uh, to understand uh, what this response of gentleness, how we, can, how we can do that, what enables us to do that. And, and I think we're helped to see that by the clause that follows. The Lord is at hand. Now, commentators have de- debated whether uh, Paul's referring to Jesus' physical nearness, like Jesus is with us, or the nearness of Jesus' return, uh, or both. I think a stronger argument is actually uh, being made here to the nearness of Jesus' second coming. And the fact that when he comes, there will be an accompanying exercise of his judgment. And though Jesus' return may feel delayed from our vantage point, the Apostle Paul tells us that the return of Jesus uh, happens not on on our calendar, but his, and that it will come uh, swiftly when when we're expecting it. We don't know the time. But if verse 5 is a reference to Jesus' imminent return, The logic of the verse is the same as Paul uses elsewhere, like in Romans 12. When we're wrong, we don't need to respond in turn with wrong. Rather, we're to leave judgment to God. Since God will exercise perfect judgment on all the deeds of man in the future, we can overcome evil with good in the present. So that's our second direction. If you want to experience supernatural peace, seek to make your gentleness known to everyone. Third, Since the Lord is near, we're commanded to respond to anxiety with prayer. Do not be anxious about anything. Instead, in all things, pray. The command's striking because we've already noted there are so many things that we might be tempted to be anxious about. And yet Paul says, don't be anxious about anything. Now, I actually don't think that Paul is saying here that every type of anxiety is bad. Uh, Just in this letter, Paul commends Epaphroditus, who was genuinely concerned, it's the same word for anxious here, for the Philippians' welfare. And Paul speaks of being anxious for Epaphroditus and anxious for uh, the churches, and he does so without apology. Apparently, there's a, a type of appropriate concern that we can have for others. But I think here, what Paul's concern is, is that is an anxiety that is absorbed in the wrong things an anxiety that is for the wrong reasons, or an an anxiety that is to the wrong degree. We're to take this fretful anxiety and we're to pray. John Piper has helpfully pointed out, whereas we're to make known our gentle responses to other people, we're to make known our heartfelt cries to God in prayer. So how do we keep the pressure from our anxieties building up and then exploding out at others? Well, Paul makes the case that faith-filled prayer is the vent that enables our concerns to go up to God so that our responses can go out to others infused with graciousness and gentleness. Now, if you're like me, when, when pressure builds, the instinct is so quickly to go and to run outward to whoever might listen uh, before I lift up my cares to God. But God has said that we should cast all of our anxieties upon him because he cares for us. 
God commands us to tell him our requests. He insists that his children do it. Make known your requests, he says. And we're going to do this mingled with thanksgiving because we're not petulant children demanding our way, Lord, stop this, don't do this, uh, change that. But we're debtors to mercy. We recognize that everything that we have, everything that we might receive is grace upon grace. So we combat anxiety and we pursue peace by bringing our concerns to our Heavenly Father. Fourth command, think about what is morally excellent. True, vibrant, biblical Christianity emphasizes the life of the mind. The call to the Christian who wants to walk in the way of peace, regardless of your education, regardless of your intellect, is to actively set your mind on God and his character and his works. This is in our experience. So oftentimes in anxiety, uh, our mind constricts. Our, our anxiety uh, makes our, our thinking narrow in on the problem. What's going to happen? How is this going to turn out? Uh, This is going to go badly. Uh, It's agonizing, and we're just focused on the problem. But our response to this is not to simply say, stop thinking about the problem, but Paul tells us to to, uh, press back this constricted view of the world by filling our minds with what is good and with what is true. Look at verse 8. Paul commands us, his command is to think about that which is virtuous or morally excellent. Wherever there's conduct that is particularly exemplary or worthy of praise, we should fill our minds with these things. We should study them, meditate on them. Whatever's true, whatever conforms to God's reality and thought and word or deed or attitude, whatever's honorable, dignified, majestic, We're not to think about those things that are base and vulgar. The Christian shouldn't be filling their minds with things that are corrupting or cheap, with profane speech or crude joking. Whatever is just, Paul means here that that which is righteous, fair, morally upright, we don't plot and devise as to how we can take advantage of others. We consider how we can treat others fairly and according to God's commands. Whatever is pure, Now, while this word means more than just being chaste or sexually pure, it certainly includes these things. We shouldn't be filling our minds with pornography or trashy novels. We should be careful about the movies or shows that we watch to make sure that they're promoting a wholehearted commitment to God and a love for our neighbor. Whatever's lovely and commendable, think about those things that are beautiful and deserving of praise Those things that should draw us to them because they're so attractive and compelling. Courage and valor and loyalty and sacrifice and compassion and kindness. Wherever we find these things, we should think about them and fill our minds with these things, particularly as they reflect the character of God. Fifthly, Paul says, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. You want peace? then we need to talk about practice. Not just thinking about these things, not just daydreaming about the right things, but practice. Whereas in verse 8, Paul drew our attention to general virtues. In verse 9, he tells the Philippians the standard by which they're to evaluate these virtues and evaluate everything else. They're to put into practice the teaching and the example that they've seen in the Apostle Paul. For us, what this means is the command is to open up our Bibles 
and study what the apostles of Jesus taught and how they lived and, and to seek with God's help to follow that example. We fill our minds with what's good and right and worthy of praise, most especially the teaching of the Bible. And then we strive to put those things into action. We're not just thinking about general virtues, but we're looking at the apostolic teaching in the scriptures to see who God is, what has God done, how are we to live in light of God's mercy, how are we to live in line with God's will. So we, we see, see the word, we hear the word, we put it into practice, and as we do, as we put the word into practice, God will be changing us, deepening our reliance upon him, changing our loves, strengthening us to walk in faith. But we need to wrap up. Can we find peace in an anxious world? Yes. And not just any peace, but supernatural peace. Where can anxious people find this peace? In the Son of God, as we trust in Him by the Spirit of God. How can we experience this peace? As we walk according to the way of God. Finding our joy in Jesus, being gentle toward all people, being prayerful in all things, filling our minds with that which is good, and putting into practice biblical teaching. The promise is not that the reasons for anxiety will necessarily go away. Paul was still in prison. The Philippians, as far as we know, were still oppressed and persecuted. But as we're in Christ and empowered to walk according to the way that he sets out, we're given the promise that in an anxious world we'll be guarded by God's peace. I read an account of a woman this week who experienced four miscarriages in her first six years of marriage. As you can, experience, as you can imagine, this experience was a tear-filled trial for this woman and her husband. During this trial, she was filled with confusion and bitterness. Each pregnancy was uh, generating fear and anxiety. What would happen? Uh, Will this time be like the last one? But through a series of circumstances, God was at work in this sister. Pointing to these verses, she found peace in God's promise. Surrendering to the Lord, she writes, crying out for help and thanking him for what I did have, Prove to bring me great peace. God also tells us that the mind that is set on him will be given peace because that person trusts in the Lord. The Lord was faithful to fulfill these promises. I was at peace because he had given me peace. I was at peace because Jesus was enough for me. Through the tears and in the trial, as she rejoiced in Jesus, as she prayed with thanksgiving for what she had, as she set her mind on God, she found God giving her a sweet peace in Jesus that couldn't otherwise be explained. The God of peace was guarding her with his peace. Friends, I don't know the circumstances that you're facing today, but God knows. He knows the fears, he knows the heartaches, he knows the physical distress, and God speaks to you this word of invitation this morning. Trust me, Believe in my son, and as you stand in him, walk in my way, and I will come to you, and I will be with you, and I will give you my peace. Amen. Father in heaven, we admit that we are weak and helpless, and we are so oftentimes filled with anxieties about a whole host of things. 
And so, Lord, this promise of peace sounds sweet to us. So we ask, Lord, that you would, first of all, ensure that we are in Christ by the Spirit. And as we experience your grace in Jesus, we pray that you would especially give us grace to walk in your way and that you would come and you would meet us and we would be able to testify as um, this sister testified in her testimony. We experience the peace which comes from God, the peace which surpasses all understanding. And we pray, Lord, that as we experience that, you would strengthen us, that we might persevere, and that also, Jesus, you might get the credit. We pray this in, in Jesus' name. Amen. Do you please uh, stand with me as we sing our song of response, Like a River Glorious.
receive now the Lord's blessing. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Amen.